Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we wanted to talk a bit about nuclear fusion. Fusion. Which is great because originally I thought it was fusion cuisine. And I went and ate a lot of uh, California cuisine, and um, it was delicious, That's, but it yeah, wasn't very Yeah, that sounds tasty and not necessarily uh, technological, yeah, per then, se. Yeah, then I thought it was fusion jazz, and so I listened to some of that. And More technological. Not, uh, not really my thing, though. Less delicious? Yeah. But no, we're talking nuclear fusion, and to uh, kind of give you an idea of what nuclear fusion is, how we are trying to harness nuclear fusion as a source of energy production, really electricity production. Uh, and yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's being touted as one of the technologies of the future that is going to give us unlimited energy. And how far away is it? 20 to 30 to 50 years. And and every year it seems like we're it's still... 20 to 30 to 50 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, this, that's one of those things that scientists will often uh, wryly kind of joke about, that the technology is always 20 years away. And, uh, and, you know, it's because the challenges that we need to overcome are quite impressive. Pretty serious. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't mean we won't do it because human beings are amazing. You know, we innovate and oh, we yeah. invent. But, um, but let's, let's kind of, first of all, talk about the difference between fusion and fission. Fission is the kind of uh, nuclear process that is used in our nuclear power plants today. Right. So if you are familiar with the nuclear power plants, things like, you know, they're, of course, they're the famous ones that have suffered Catastrophic failures like mm-hmm. Three Mile Island or Chernobyl, Fukushima, yeah. Uh, but th- these are the the uh, reactors where they split up larger atoms into smaller atoms, and as a result, a great deal of energy is given off, uh, really in the form of heat, which is then harnessed to convert water into steam, which turns steam turbines, which are connected to electrical generators generating electricity. Mm-hmm. So really, it's just a a very very efficient way of heating up a lot of water really quickly mm-hmm. and making it do work. Oh, uh, yes, a very f- efficient, very radioactive steam generator. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the big issues with uh, with the fission power plants, obviously, is that it uses nuclear uh, radioactive material, not just nuclear material, radioactive material, right. and that it doesn't, the, the radioactivity is still very much a factor once that reaction is finished. For thousands and thousands of years. Right, yeah, you, you Generally speaking, only about 3% of the uranium in a uranium rod is used up in a fission reactor before the waste has to be disposed of because it uh, will continue to heat up until it reaches a point that's too hot and the reactor itself can suffer a failure. You have, that's what you have. And the you meltdown. have that meltdown. Right. Yeah. Uh, there are some, uh, some approaches that are uh, suggesting that we take another pass at that nuclear waste and use that in a second round by immersing it in a molten salt, the waste annihilating molten salt reactor. Or, Which I still, I just can't, I can't get over the, uh, the annihilator part yeah, of that. Yeah, the waste that's, annihilator. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so uh, this, this reactor would, it's still a fission reactor, but it would, uh, immerse the, the radioactive material, the uranium, in a molten salt and use that to control the heat in a in a way that would allow you to use that material for longer so you'd be able to get more use out of the same radioactive material and 
reduce the life of the actual radioactive yeah, elements. At the at the final output, I think it would only be radioactive. It, it would only be reactive for another 300 years. Yeah. So still well beyond our lifetimes right now, but not something that you would say, all right, generations and generations and generations are going to have right, to be right. aware of this. You don't have to start, uh, you know, programming things that people, you know, languages that don't exist yet are yeah. going to be able to understand. Right, right. How do I, how do I create a pictograph that shows exactly do not go in here? Don't touch this thing. You know, we messed that, it up really hard. Right. In 10,000 years, English may not even be a thing anymore. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of those possible solutions, but fusion is very different. Fission, all about splitting atoms apart. Fusion is about being buddy buddy and bringing atoms together. <laughs> and this is this is the kind of uh, of process that we see happening in stars, including the sun. The sun being a star, yes. Yes, yes. Well, I'm just making sure people know that. Uh, and despite what my one of my favorite bands has said in a cover of a song, actually, the sun is not really a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic <laughs> nuclear furnace. But they did correct it in a later song and say it was a miasma of incandescent plasma. So they did go back and correct it. But uh, they were actually quoting an old uh, song from a, a, a science album for kids, mm-hmm. which was to explain the process of fusion and how the sun generates energy and light. And uh, And the way it happens is it takes these... Uh, hydrogen atoms, and because the sun is so massive and dense, there's a huge amount of gravity there. Mm-hmm. And it's creating an enormous amount of pressure and heat. So the heat is uh, stripping those hydrogen atoms of their electrons. Creating ions. Uh-huh, that creates ions. And in a, a pure hydrogen atom is just a proton and a, an electron. So that electron goes away. Now you've just got a proton there. Sure. And so... Uh, you have these protons now that are zipping around at Moving incredible very speeds fast. Uh-huh, and being pressed together really tightly by the amazing force of gravity. And at the sun's core, where this is the strongest, these atoms are banging up against each other so fast and so close that one of the other fundamental forces in the universe overacts the electromagnetic force. Now, the four forces in the universe include gravity, which is the weakest, but is the, uh, it, it is the most effective over huge distances. Right. You have electromagnetic force. You, and then you have the strong and weak nuclear forces. Now, the strong force is what holds nucleic particles together. It's like the glue that keeps a nucleus together. Right. Right? So, if you were able to get two protons close enough to each other, uh, the strong nuclear force would be strong enough to counteract the electromagnetic force. That's that's naturally driving them apart because protons both have a positive charge. And if you've ever taken two magnets and tried to stick the two positive ends together, it, it... it resists you. It doesn't want to do that thing. Exactly. Um, but when you get them to within one trillionth of a millimeter of each other, yeah, then that will that will go away, yeah. or or it will be overcome by the strong nuclear, strong force. nuclear force. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to get them really, really close together. Now, at that po- point, when you have fused two hydrogen protons together, you have created a different element. Hydrogen has now become helium. At a temperature of millions of, of degrees. degrees. Doom, doom. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we can't see. <laughs> we, we, might, we might both be, they might be Giants fans. I'll be seeing them in a week. Uh, they're coming to Atlanta. By the time you guys hear this, I've already seen it. And the show was awesome, I guess. Uh, so anyway, the, the, the protons have 
fused together to form helium. But here's the interesting thing. In that process, the mass of that helium atom is slightly less than the combined masses of the two hydrogen atoms that fuse together to make the helium. Why is that, Jonathan? Some of that mass gets converted into energy. Right. Now, there's a little equation you may have heard of called E equals MC squared. I think I think some some guy named Einstein was talking yeah. about that. I L- don't know. Listen here, Einstein. Yeah, <laughs> Einstein uh, came up with this idea. Uh, he came up with a theory, and and turns out that it it looks like it's true. <laughs> Energy equals mass times the square or the speed of light squared, rather not the square speed of light, but the speed of light squared. So speed of light is. A big, 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 big number. Then mm-hmm. you square it, and it's even bigger. Much bigger. And you multiply... Exponentially bigger. Yeah, and multiply that times whatever the mass is, you get your energy output. And so, essentially, what this equation tells us is that a tiny little bit of mass, once converted into energy, will be an enormous amount of energy. Right. Same thing... It will... And also, that the, the mass and energy never really go away. No. They are simply converted Exactly. We, we cannot create or destroy energy, but what we can do is convert energy to mass and mass to energy, at least in theory. Now, uh, if we were to convert energy to mass, it would take an awful lot of energy to make just a little bit of mass, which is why uh, I always go crazy when I read the Harry Potter books and people conjure stuff out of thin air because I think, do you, you just destroyed like three solar systems in order to do They're that. Clearly pulling them from a parallel dimension or something like that. Yeah, so there's just a there's, bunch of people just, in a parallel dimension who are like, it's so cold. There's a, there's a really huge room of requirement somewhere that's just, okay. yeah. Alright, now, now you're talking my language. So yeah, it, it, a little bit of mass creates a lot of energy. So even though we're talking tiny atomic measurements here, where we have the helium, uh, atom, which has got a lower mass than the two combined hydrogen atoms, that still puts off quite a bit of energy, and and the sun is doing this all the time with tons of hydrogen converting into helium every day. Right. All right. So, massive amount of energy that's being that's being emitted. I mean, and if it weren't being emitted, then there would be no life on this planet. Right. And 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 we know it works. You know, so it, we can observe this. This is this is as far as we can tell. Real science. Yes. So we know it works. We know we can do it. In fact, we have done it. We've reproduced mm-hmm. it here on Earth. We'll get into that in a little bit. But it, the question was, if the sun does this, if that's how the sun does this, could we create energy here on Earth using a similar method, knowing that on Earth the conditions are very different right, from right. the core of the sun? We don't have that gravity or that heat that is allowing the sun to overcome the the right to overcome the electromagnetic force. force. Yeah, this in the in the, the gravity is the really important part because that gravity is what's allowing the, this nuclear fusion process to happen at a temperature that would actually be lower than it, we would need here on Earth because we don't have that gravity. We don't have the ability to compress the atoms as tightly together as we would if if, if we had the sun's gravity. Right, right. I we have to gen- we have to overcome that with mm-hmm. even more heat. Yeah, the the sun only needs about um 15 million degrees Kelvin only oh, a measly. Hmm? 15 million Kelvin. 15 uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My <laughs> my bad. I always do that. I did, um, I did it once and one of our great listeners corrected me and that's the only reason I <laughs> Because our listeners are awesome, and they, they let me know when I've done something silly like that. Completely ridiculous. It's the only reason I know. <laughs> so thank you, listeners. Um, uh, so, so yeah, the sun.
sun only needs about 15 million Kelvin in order to do this. Uh, here on Earth, it would be something like 100 million. Yeah, so we're talking massive amounts of energy that we would need here on Earth to compensate for the fact that we don't have that gravity there to help us with this reaction. Um, now, in the sun, you're talking about the pure hydrogen encountering other pure hydrogen. So one proton, one electron, the electrons get stripped away, the protons get fused together. But on Earth, we've discovered that there's a better uh, combination to go with that requires less energy than it would if we were to use pure hydrogen. Oh, right. It's it's relatively difficult to run into pure hydrogen here. Yeah, we you so. would have to you would have to essentially split the hydrogen off of something else. Um, you know, there's lots of hydrogen on Earth. Uh, we have no water, shortage of it. Yeah, it's just connected to lots of other stuff. Yeah. So um, the two types, uh, the two isotopes of hydrogen, and the isotope, by the way. Uh, means that uh, you have more or fewer neutrons than whatever the um, the atom typically has, but it's or it's it's a different number of of neutrons than uh, the base version of that atom. Right. But it's um, same number of protons, same number of electrons. So an isotope is one isotope of hydrogen is uh, deuterium, which is also known as heavy hydrogen, and it has one proton and one neutron. So. Typically, you would not have a neutron with hydrogen. Deuterium does have a neutron. And then you have tritium, which is called also called heavy, heavy hydrogen. <laughs> so it's extra heavy. He's not heavy. He's my tritium. Uh, and this is a proton that has two neutrons. Uh, so same, still the same element. It's just a different isotope. Uh, now, deuterium, we've got a lot of that. Here on Earth. Uh, yeah, it can be extracted from seawater. It's not radioactive or anything. Uh, yeah, it's not dangerous. Um, that, but yeah, you can, you can find deuterium in, in, uh, ocean water. Um, you cannot find tritium very easily, mostly because it's not completely stable. It does tend to decay. And, uh, it's it just. Has, it has a half-life of about 10 years, but yeah. you can, um, you can get it from lithium. Yeah, you, you, if you take lithium, the metal lithium, not the medication, the metal <laughs> lithium, and you bombard it with neutrons, then one of the things you get out of that is tritium. So that is one way to get the, the tritium. And it, we found out that tritium and deuterium, if you try to fuse those two together, then you get helium and a neutron, uh, out of that reaction. And, uh, it requires less energy than it, than other combinations do. Right. The, the, these are the current forms of fusion that are possible on our planet, our, our deuterium tritium. Yeah. And we're going to talk about how, you know, generating a, nu- a nuclear fusion reaction here on Earth, what kind of challenges we encounter and, and how we've worked around them in just a moment. But before we do, let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsor. All right, let's get back to fusion. So we've got the deuterium in the seawater. We can bombard some lithium with some neutrons and get some tritium out of that. Uh, We're ready to introduce the deuterium to the tritium and and make a date and (laughs) have them fuse together in a single unit of helium and shoot off an extra neutron. And a lot of energy. What do we need to do? So we know that we're going to be using deuterium and tritium because that's the the uh, the most efficient way that we've found so far uh-huh. to be able well, to do it's, these. It's the easiest for, for us to use. Deuterium, deuterium would actually be more efficient, but it's more difficult to get started. Ah, I see, I see. So, right, so we we might get more energy output with deuterium, deuterium, but it would also require more energy to get the whole thing started. Right, which is kind of the entire problem with fusion yeah, in, in fact, general. Yeah, in fact, that's, that's the biggest, all right, we'll just go ahead and say that. One of the biggest challenges we face with fusion is the fact that 
in order to make a fusion reaction here on Earth, you have to pour in a great deal of energy so that you can create the the uh, the the situation you're, you need. Right, to, you're you're replicating what goes on in a star. That's really a lot of temperature, a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, so in so, order to do that without all that pressure here on Earth, we've got to pour in even more temperature. Mm-hmm. So that's the big challenge: is how do you create a reaction that's going to generate more energy through the output than it required to, to start create. it. Right. So if it requires more energy to go in than you get out, you have an energy sink. You're yes, actually losing you're, energy. You're in the red, and that's yeah. not really useful. No, um, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty. It's still pretty cool, yeah, but it just it's not yeah, commercially yeah. viable. I guess if you want to make helium, uh, they're probably... Better ways, ways to do to that. Get I mean, yeah. we are running out. I mean, but uh-huh. still, that's a lot of energy you're pouring into making some balloons float, or cooling the Large Hadron Collider. However, you want to think huh. about it. All right, but so so we do have we do there, there's two main ways that mm-hmm. we are experimenting with this on Earth, and uh, one of those it's called magnetic confinement. Right. So magnetic confinement is what was used in the Joint European Taurus or JET uh, fusion reactor. And this was sort of a test reactor. It wasn't meant to be uh, a, a, like an electrical generator. Oh, right, right. It wasn't a power plant. It was more science is cool than anything else. But uh, and this is a good point to say that you know ultimately the way we would generate inter- uh, electricity with these is not that we have some magical like uh, power energy cables, collectors that yeah, yeah that, that just that suck plug out. into the uh-huh. bolts and then it pulls. Yeah, it, this no. is still a steam generator. Yeah, exactly. Which is which is really interesting to me because you know this is I, technically this is steampunk. I mean, yeah, we're I, we're essentially harnessing the power of the of sun. The atom. Uh-huh. Yes, the stars themselves to turn water into steam. Uh, yeah, uh, it's still but, it's still converting water to steam to turn steam really turbines. really well, really efficiently. Yeah, really efficiently. And a lot of water, because you're talking about a lot of heat. Yeah. So then um, that's, the, that's the other thing, is that if, if you could have used the same amount of energy you used to start the reaction to heat up some water... <laughs> right, and, and, and get a better effect. And get a better effect, then obviously this makes no sense. I mean, that's the whole point, is that we have to find a way to do a fusion reaction where we're getting more energy than we're putting into it. Otherwise, just take the reactor out and just direct your energy to water directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take out the middleman. But um, magnetic confinement, you mentioned, it uses a really powerful magnetic field to hold the uh, the ionized gas in place. And ionized gas is plasma. plasma. So plasma is a gas where you've got free-roaming electrons. That is what the sun is. That's, you know, all that heat has stripped away the electrons. You've poured energy in, you've pushed the electrons away, you've got these free-flowing uh, nuclei uh, in, inside the plasma. And then uh, the, the magnetic field starts to press all of these nuclei together until you are able to fuse them. And what you get are uh, helium atoms and free neutrons. The neutrons fly off and they hit what they call blankets. Blankets of lithium. Yep, blankets. Uh, lithium is in the blanket as well, yes. Mm-hmm. And the, that means that, because remember, if you bombard lithium with a neutron, you create tritium, which means that you can continually create part yeah. of the fuel source you need for this for reaction. For free while you're in the middle of the process. Yeah, it's pretty pretty neat. Yeah, and it's also giving off a lot of energy in the form of heat, which is then heating up the water to turn it into steam, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm, sure. So that's magnetic confinement. Um and we use different things to heat up the plasma, like we might use microwaves or, or lasers. Or, or electricity. electricity. Or, um, uh, I think that, that accelerator-driven neutral particle beams are, are, uh, are integral in the um, International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, or ITER, which is the one in France. 
Yes. It comes from France. Uh, that one, <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, that one is um, still being built. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's, it's projected to be finished in 2020. Yep. And projected projected to be online by 2030, although whether or not that is a true fact or not is, you know, remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. So if it stays on uh, target, then we'll be able to say by 2030, you know, if this is actually a viable means of generating uh, electricity for us. Right. Uh, by the way, uh, the chamber uh, has a special name. It's a, it's a, how did, how did we decide that this is pronounced? Takamak. Yeah, I we, keep we, thinking we've Taco got, Mac. We've got Takamaks here in Atlanta, yeah, so it yeah. keeps throwing me Ta- off. Taco um, Mac is a, is a restaurant chain in Atlanta that has, uh, obviously, tacos. Yes. But this uh, is Takamak. Uh, it's actually a Russian acronym for toroidal chamber with axial magnetic field. Um, yeah. which basically means it's a donut. It's a magnet, it's a magnetic donut. Mmm. Magnetic <laughs> donut. <laughs> Yeah, these and, and and granted, this is this is a you know the Eider version is a is a hundred foot tall, twenty three thousand ton, million part donut. Enormous magnetic donut. <laughs> yeah, and the reason for the donut shape is they've found that that is the most uh, effective way of of uh, containing the plasma in this really tight field, so that you can have these fusion reactions take place. So we've got magnetic confinement. There's another method, uh, which ha- received some some attention early on, and there's still some labs, like there's some in the United States that are still looking mm-hmm. at this approach, and it may even turn out that this ends up generating more energy in the long run than the magnetic confinement, but we're still trying to figure that out. It's called inertial confinement. Right, and this is using um, laser beams or ion beams to squeeze and heat that hydrogen plasma. Yeah, in this case, really, they take a, a pellet a frozen hydrogen. Mm-hmm. So you have deuterium and tritium in an actual physical pellet. So mm-hmm. you're talking super cold. Yeah, yeah, and, and and pea-sized. I mean, like little bitty thing. Yeah, and you're using these these lasers or ions to heat that pellet into a plasma almost instantaneously. I mean, mm-hmm. you're just you're bombarding it with an enormous amount of energy. And essentially, what's happening is that all right, if you've ever seen the the magic trick where the magician walks up to the, the the dining table with all the beautiful glassware and everything that's uh-huh. perched perfectly uh-huh. on the tablecloth, and then he grabs the tablecloth and gives it a quick jerk and everything stays there. Uh-huh. What kind Peter of... Venkman failed to do in Ghostbusters. Exactly, yes. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, it's the same, same sort of idea here in that you are heating it up so fast that because it's because this is a compressed pellet and the lasers are actually compressing it, or ions are compressing it even further as it's being heated up, before the electromagnetic force has the opportunity to push the atoms apart, the strong nuclear force fuses them together. And so it kind of implodes. Yeah. So you got to do, I mean, it, it's happening super fast. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the, the fr- fractions, like one millionth of a second, I yeah. think is how fast this happens. It's, it's insane. And, and, uh, it's, a, there are other differences between the inertial confinement and magnetic confinement. With magnetic confinement, the goal is to find a way to have ongoing fusion reactions so mm-hmm. that you don't have to just generate electricity or generate heat in spurts, that you could actually have a maintained reaction that goes on for an extended amount of time to generate as much electricity as is needed. Whereas uh, inertial confinement, you'd have to set up multiple, essentially multiple targets. Oh, right, right. Because uh, the, way that, the way that one of them works at the National Ignition Facility of Lawrenceville Livermore Laboratory in the United States, in California, I believe, um, it uses 192 laser beams to focus on a single point in a test chamber. Um, and this single point is where that little pea-sized bit of, uh, of hydrogen, of hydrogen is yeah. sitting. And 
And so, you know, they're, they're working on ways to focus the lasers better and, and essentially have multiple pellets. And, and, and also, yeah, and, and to have, to have chambers, multiple chambers with multiple pellets that are going off in succession so that you create a continuous in quote, quotation marks in the air. Yeah. Reaction. Yeah. So it's, it's a challenging thing. And, uh, if, if they are able to crack it, it has the potential to create quite a bit of electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so that, we could start to really take the the load off of things like uh, fossil fuel based power plants. Right, right. Uh, they're they're talking about um, with with inertial confinement a fifty two hundred times more energy um, output than than you would have to put in. Yeah. Whereas uh, the numbers that I've seen for ITER anyway are more like seven times. Yeah. So you know, either way, you're still getting a lot of energy out. Oh, uh, sure. And and. We're not there yet. No one has no one has created a fusion reactor here on Earth that has been efficient enough for it to be a meaningful way to create electricity. Uh, it because uh, you would be losing energy on the deal. So if these work out, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, there are there are a lot of challenges here. I mean, you can imagine if we're talking about using these incredible amounts of heat, you have to be able to design a reactor that can withstand that. Handle it, yeah. Sure. And that's tough. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. So that's a big challenge. And then you know, we've got other ones as well. And again, scientists will say, like, eh, it's about 20 years away. Right. So hopefully we're, they're right. You um, know, right now, I think one, one of the challenges is almost a societal challenge because people hear fusion and they think fission. And, and they, they think, think radioactive. And radioactive think, and meltdown yeah. and not in my backyard right. and et cetera. Uh, whereas fusion is potentially anyway loads safer uh-huh. than a fission reactor. You don't, you're not talking about, you, you know, your output is a neutron and helium. It's not a heavy radioactive material right. that's going to have a half-life of several thousand years. It's stuff that is harmless once you have harnessed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really the question would be, you know, as long as the reactor is well-made and solid, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about this heat escaping or uh, right, any well, other kind of, of, uh, of mechanical failure. Well, like like any other um, steam turbine generator, it's going to have an impact on the environment in that, you know, you're going to be taking in water and and that's an impact and it's going to be putting off steam, which well, is an impact. And there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of designs I've seen where they have built in a system where they condense the steam back down into the water so it becomes a closed loop right so at least then you are yeah i mean you still probably have a loss i mean it's Uh it's hard to create a perfectly closed loop yeah but if you could then you could just essentially use the same water over and over Uh and over again uh, because you know the steam's just going to condense into water and then the water will go back into steam once you heat it up yeah and so and and again you know even if you do have even if you do have a loss you're not going to be having blinky the three-eyed fish in the river outside right so so yeah there's you know and and who knows maybe that'll uh really generate enough helium for us. I mostly joke about that because I seriously doubt there's any useful way to harness an, an, a, a huge amount of helium from these reactions. But uh, that brings us to an idea called cold fusion. And cold fusion... It is kind of what it sounds like. I mean, the idea is what it sounds like. And if well, it's, it's, it's not actually cold. It's more room temperature room fusion. Room temperature fusion. Really. But, Com- but that's compared, a little bit less of a fun buzzword. Right. So. Well, compared to a 100 million degree reaction, it's frigid fusion. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, cold fusion is the idea that you would be able to create these reactions, these fusion reactions, at essentially room temperature and still get energy off of them, which if it were true would be huge because that would mean that we wouldn't have to pour in so much energy to start the reaction. Yeah, we yeah. just have to set up the right situation and harness the uh, the energy that comes off of it and make 
free energy for everybody. Mm-hmm, right, right. Proponents of it, I like to call it low energy nuclear reactions. Yeah, it does, it, because cold fusion definitely has a stigma against it now. And, um, this the is, reason yeah. for that is all right. that, uh, <laughs> all right. So, so there were a pair of scientists, Pons and Fleischmann, who, uh, published a paper that was, that, that this really, was in 1989. Yeah, it became really famous. And it was that this, they were talking about a reaction that, that they observed that gave off more energy than it should have based upon what they did. Right, so, right. What happened was um, they put an electrode of palladium into a thermos of, of heavy water of mm-hmm. uh, deuterium oxide uh-huh. um, and charged it with an electrical current. And uh, supposedly the palladium catalyzed fusion by allowing the deuterium atoms to snuggle up. So, in other words, they were able to create a fusion reaction at a at a very low temperature, comparatively speaking, mm-hmm. and at room uh, temperature, yeah. and and that they observed an excess of energy being given off by this. So they were like, uh, "Eureka! We have found a way to create electricity, mm-hmm. or really to create energy through this reaction." And then a few labs tried to replicate their results, and early results seemed to replicate it, uh, at least in a couple of instances. But upon further study, it seemed like most of those successes were due to either mechanical error, like someone uh-huh. mis- someone misread, misread the output. something, mm-hmm. or it was a poorly calibrated uh, sensor or. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, like there was there always seemed to be something wrong with the experiment uh, that put whatever the results were within the margin of error. And if it's within the margin of error, you cannot really be sure that you've got an actual positive result. Right. So. Pons and Fleischmann continued to talk about their studies and continued to be proponents of this idea, uh, but it increasingly became sort of a, kind of a, a almost well, a joke, really. A pathological science is what other okay. scientists were calling it. Sure, you know, mm-hmm. which essentially means joke in science talk. <laughs> no, they were saying that it, there was no real proof of it working. That. The results were not replicable, which is something that's important in science, as it turns out. Yeah, we like that. And that there does, doesn't seem to be any support, based upon our understanding of the universe, that cold fusion could actually be a thing. Mm-hmm. And, and this wasn't the only time that it's been attempted. Uh, back in 2005, UC, UCLA researchers were working with uh, pyroelectric crystals um, to, to create electric fields in, in water, normal, uh-huh. normal old stuff. And uh, in 2009, the U.S. Navy's uh, Space and Naval Warfare Systems Department was was trying some stuff. Yeah, and it, it just it doesn't seem to have ever panned out. Now, there are conspiracy theorists who suggest that perhaps big energy companies are suppressing information about cold fusion and have compromised the scientific community as such, uh, and therefore... Cold fusion could be a thing, but we don't know about it because people are actively working against us from learning about it. Uh, I would not go so far as to say that. I will say that there is enough of a stigma against cold fusion and low-energy nuclear reactions uh, within the literature world that most magazines won't, you know, scientific journals won't, even consider publishing. won't consider publishing, sure. right? So they just they dismiss it out of hand. Now, that I think people can make a legitimate argument that that is probably short-sighted that that right, they should right. al- they should at least consider them so that other scientists have the opportunity to observe the, the to to learn about the results mm-hmm. try and replicate it and then that's how we can and make progress. At least, progress. yeah, at least make a consideration about it before, rather than dismissing it out of hand. Right. As yeah, I think I think dismissing it out of hand ends up just 
creating more fuel for the conspiracy theorists. Now, personally, I don't think there's anything to it. Counter, counter culture. What's the, I was, I was lectured about the terminology of of conspiracy theorists. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry that the conspiracy theorists hate the term conspiracy theorist. I'm really sorry about that. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah. We're going to have Ben and Madden here on our... <laughs> Bring them on. I will... Ben's my arch nemesis. Everyone knows that. So, uh, And if you didn't know that, now you do. I called him my arch nemesis the very first day I met him six years ago. So, And it has held true. We, by the way, share trains, to, train rides together and chat all the way and talk about music. Very, and very, very little actual arch nemesis story. He's about as lazy a hero as I am lazy a supervillain. So really nothing happens. Really? Is that, yeah. is that how it works out? He's, he's the hero, you're the villain? I mean, you're, you're, you've, you've got the, I've you've got, got, got the, the goatee. bald goatee thing. That's, so. that's the problem, right? I mean, I'm, I have to be the villain by default by Star Trek rules. Uh, we, we go <laughs> off on a tangent. So anyway, right, anyway, the science does not seem to hold up. Cold fusion. It just doesn't seem to, there doesn't seem to be any support there. Now, maybe that there, there actually is a way of doing it. Maybe there is, and, uh, it's just that whatever results were found were due to something else, and it just hasn't been discovered in the other examples. And, uh, maybe it'll turn out that that is the answer, which would be amazing. And I think everyone really wants that world to exist. Oh, absolutely. It would, it would mean that our energy problems, we would, we would be in an energy surplus Mm -hmm. to the point where when you have energy surplus, so many things become possible. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that you know that you kind of start seeing in something like Star Trek, where it's, right. it's just this perfect utopian universe where a lot of people don't have to work anymore because yeah. we have we have free energy, so we have free transportation, so we have free food. Yeah, so. yeah, and so obviously this would be a, a pretty great world, and I think it's pretty cynical, maybe not completely unrealistic, to say that corporations would suppress such a world for their own gain because right. I actually think they would have more to gain in the utopia version of the world. Than in the current one, but I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a CEO of a major corporation, so maybe I would think in a different way if I were. I can I can see how how changing the status quo could be a scary thing. Yeah, and I'm too lazy to try. Uh, again, supervillain lazy. So um, yeah. Anyway, uh, it, it'll. I, I'm interested to see how the the fusion reactors like ITER turn out uh, over the next couple of decades. Um, if anyone does make advances in the cold fusion field. That would be phenomenal. And, you know, while I am a skeptic and I I fully admit that I'm a skeptic, I'm also a person who, if you show me evidence that really supports the claim and it's replicable, then I'm going to say like, okay, you're right. I mean, that's, that's how science works. That's right. uh, I am willing to say like, okay, my, my skepticism was, uh, was not well founded because here we have proof. Right, but, but until then, yeah. But until one, then, I'm a skeptic. One of my one of my favorite stories about that. There's a, a Scottish physicist named Douglas Morrison who would attend these cold fusion conferences every year and 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 listen. And from what I understand, really genuinely listen to these people who had these brilliant ideas about about how these things might work and and how they were supposedly working in their own labs. And he would stand up and say, "Can you please make me a cup of tea?" And they would go, well, it can't produce that much heat yet. And he would go, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing is that if cold fusion, if these reactions are actually happening, if if there really is something to it, the problem would be, can it be scaled up to something that's useful? Right, exactly. And if it can't be scaled up, then it may be that, all right, well, we've learned something interesting that we didn't know before, which is always valuable. But if it's not... Uh, practical to use this in any way of generating electricity, it doesn't actually meet the problem that we're trying to solve. Right. So 
that's something else to keep in mind. Although, personally, I'm always like knowledge for knowledge's sake. Bring Great. it on. Pretty cool. So anyway, that kind of wraps up this full discussion about fusion. If you guys have any suggestions for future articles, if you want to uh, berate me for the use of the term conspiracy theorist, uh, you can write me. That's fine. Uh, my uh, well, Our ad- address is techstuffatdiscovery.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. Uh, please let us know if you have anything you want us to talk about. We are loving the submissions. We're keeping track of them, and it's really helping us out when we plan out our episodes. So Absolutely. keep them coming. Yeah. And uh, Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 